This morning we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 5. And the last time we looked at the, the author of Hebrews really hit home with the concept of God's rest. And if you've lived your life for any amount of years, maybe you've had a, a, a past that was unusually difficult, um, you know what it means to hear the word rest and really drink that in. And again, you, you sigh a, a breath and you, you just feel good about that. You know, you just, we just want to rest at times. You know, sometimes in this area, in this year, in this East Coast, it's like a rat race. You know, everybody's running on the, on the treadmills and on the, on the little hamster circles and, and we're not getting anywhere. So God's rest, you know, there's a physical rest, there's an emotional rest. And there's a spiritual rest, which is the most important. The other two hinge off of it. And today we're going to look at Christ's superiority over the priesthood and why that's significant. And then we'll see the last few verses, a very interesting sharp turn that the author of Hebrews makes. Now, for the ease of uh, understanding the scripture, I am going to start in chapter 4, even though we covered it. Uh, As I've said many times, chapter delineations came many years later. They weren't necessarily inspired. They were put there to help break up the chapters, but uh, I'm going to start with uh, 4.14 and run through 5.4 right now. So, 4.14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. If there was ever a superhero, it's Jesus Christ. He passed through the atmosphere he passed through, he, he was raised from the dead, you couldn't stop him, he ascended into heaven, he passed through the heavens. So we hold fast of our confession because we're just, we know what he's done for us. For we do not have a high priest, meaning Jesus Christ, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifice for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also beset by weaknesses. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was, meaning Moses' brother, and God set that priesthood in the line of Aaron and his sons and his progeny. So in order to make sense of this in the Western mind, some of you may be saying, what priest? I don't understand. I mean, I know some religions have priests. You guys have pastors. There's rabbis. What's this whole concept? Help me understand this. So that's what we're going to do. Number one, a priest was a man who was ordained by God. He was picked by God to do this. He was in the Aaronic line. Now, again, several uh, branches or pseudo-branches of Christianity have various priests, uh, as do pagans. But the question is, if you're really a Christian organization, can you trace your priesthood back to Aaron? Because that was the line that God had set up for the priesthood. Okay? Kind of hard to do today. Uh, genealogies have been lost but the sacrifice for he sacrificed for himself and he sacrificed for the people he was I actually put on my notes a mediator but I actually scratched it out and wrote interim mediator because he was only a type of a Christ right so he was temporary until Christ came and in successive chapters we're going to see how Jesus was the final high priest 
that nobody could can continue to do that after his uh, officiation and dying for our sins. He also had to have compassion and sympathize as he also was a sinner. Imagine that. I mean, this was a, a heavy job for the priest to do. He had the, uh, the sacrifices that had to be uh, a, a committed to atone for the sins of the people, and it could, it could have ranked in the millions. And he would go trembling before God with this offering to atone for that sin, again, temporarily, until the great high priest Jesus Christ came. So we're going to look at these differences, again, between the human line of the high priest versus uh, the great, he's called the great high priest, and also the eternal high priest. And we'll see what that means, embodied by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So number one, Jesus Christ passed through the heavens. He transcended the temporal and the spiritual dimensions, uh, whereas the human high priest was what? He was tethered to the earth. He was a man. He was frail. And when he died, his body went back into the ground, although Jesus transcended both of those dimensions. Number two, Jesus as a man experienced difficulties in this life on the earth so he could sympathize with us. Now this is important because some preach that Jesus Christ was rich and he was some royalty and he was untouchable. Not true. Not so. He considered the men that he served with his brothers. Amazing. And we'll, we'll use some analogies there as well. And this is really the most important part is that Jesus, because of his sacrifice, we can come boldly before the throne of grace. I have to tell you, I got a little carried away last Sunday. I got all excited about talking about the throne room and, and, you know, it's three in the morning. Can you hear me now, God? You know, is there an answer machine? Is there a phone loop? Is there customer service? No. You know, no matter when you turn to God, he's ready and willing to listen. And I got so excited and so carried away that I forgot to make the connection of why we can do that because of what Jesus did in his sacrifice. So let me encourage you with that this morning, but also to understand why we get to do this. And I'll go through this. You see, the, the high priest would, would receive sacrifices, would receive offerings from the people. They would repent, and, and they would give of something that was valuable uh, to the temple system, really to God. They would repent. They would make peace offerings and wave offerings and burnt offerings. And in addition to that, every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take the blood of the innocent animals, and he would go from the holy place where there was various pieces of furniture, three, and then he would go through this thick curtain, really thick, several inches thick, and he would get, go into that curtain and close it behind him, and he would take the blood and he would offer it before the mercy seat where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God said his presence would always be. So he was now in the presence of God, a sinful man, making uh, atonement for his sins and also for the sins of the people. This was a scary thing. Uh, we know that in, from the Bible and also from tradition that the priest on his garment had bells. And as he was doing his thing, if everybody heard the bells ding-a-ling-a-linging, they knew that every, all was well. If he was improper in the way he did it, he, God could strike him down and the bells would stop ringing. In addition to the bells, he would have a, a sort of rope or something around his waist that they could drag him out because nobody else could go in there. So this is how serious sin is, and we forget that in our culture. And we gloss over it, and some pulpits do the same thing. So why do we get to be in God's presence now? This is amazing. Jesus died. One of the things that happened when Jesus died was that there was an earthquake, that saints came out from the graves and, and, and 
in, in Matthew's gospel, imagine that, seeing your loved ones. Like, where where'd they come from? I thought they died last year. And in addition to that, this, this veil, this huge thick curtain between the, the most holy place, the holy of holies, that curtain, and then where everybody else could be, when Christ died, it was rent, it was ripped from top to bottom, signifying that now it's open. Because of what Jesus did, we can be in God's presence without fear. Now, we should go to God in reverence, but we can also go to him boldly as he's our daddy. In the royal courts, it talked about the kingdoms, the monarchies. You couldn't just walk into the king's chambers and say, hey, king, how's it going? Off with your head. However, if you were the king's child and you did that, you could. So we are no longer his sub subjects separated by sin. We are his children adopted because of what Jesus did on the cross. Amen? So this is exciting because we know now why we get to just any time talk to him. I take that for granted, you know. I talk to him several times a day every day in, in short bursts. You know, I don't necessarily pray for two hours at once. I'd run out of things to say. But we have little vignettes, little conversations. And I just take for granted that there was not one conversation I had with him that he didn't hear. So I want to encourage you with that this morning. That is available for to everyone here this morning. Rejoice in that. So Jesus fulfilled three roles too. He was the high priest, but the high priest needed a sacrifice, needed some innocent uh, animal or, or figure that the sins could be transferred to because God had to judge those sins. So what Jesus said is, yeah, I am the high priest. I don't have a sacrifice. Well, I'm going to sacrifice myself. So he gave himself up on the cross, and that was his sacrifice to the Father. He's also a sovereign. He now is seated on the throne. He's, uh, he makes intercession for us. He's in glory. He's glorified. So he's three things, the high priest, the sacrifice, and the king. Now the first thing we learn as we wrap up this small section is Christ's superiority over the human priesthood and the institution in general and how he transcended both. We move on, verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he, meaning the Father, who said to him, meaning the Son, and this comes from Psalm 2, today you are my Son, today I have begotten you. And he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And that comes from Psalm 110. So here is this major dichotomy that we see between the human priesthood and Christ as the eternal high priest. Remember the Moses dichotomy that I did, and I, I kind of did a little visual aid in a linear fashion. Here's Jesus and Moses starting off. They had some similarities, and then, of course, the Son of God, he just takes off. And by comparison, he's, Moses is just a man. Well, it's the same thing with the high priest. The people, imagine if, if the high priest had a heart attack or he fell into some wanton sin, the people would panic. Well, this is our high priest. Who's going to do this for us? Quickly, we, we need a replacement and see if God accepts that. Okay? So you have your man who's a high priest. For the most part, they were obedient men, although they were sinners. And then you had Jesus Christ. And then you have Jesus Christ and what he did and what that man couldn't do. Again, you see that same that dichotomy, that same he, Jesus just takes off. And the man just keeps going in a linear fashion because he's only a man. So we're going to do that again today. But what I love about this is that Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. He didn't glorify himself at all, if you read the scriptures. There was never one time where Jesus said, and he, you know, da -da 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 -da, look, it's me, I'm the Messiah. And he never did that in all of scripture. 
The one person on earth who could have done that didn't do that. He didn't glorify himself. He was given this position and he accepted it humbly. It's really sad, or it's really sad in a side note, uh, you know, what we see in our culture today. Uh, just pride, it's obnoxious. Sometimes in sports figures. I read that really neat article about uh, Brian Bosworth. If you want it, I'll make a copy for you. He admitted how arrogant he was. And then he became a Christian. But they throw a ball around. Let's put this in perspective, okay? And they're paid millions of dollars to do that, whether they bounce it or throw it or catch it or hit it. It's a ball, okay? So sports figures, Hollywood figures, they get paid to lie to us, right? Here's your role. Pretend you're this type of person. And they do it very well. And they get paid millions of dollars for that. Politicians, right? <laughs> I, see, I see a lot of you like politicians. <laughs> But you know what's worse? In ecclesiastical office, in ministry. Pride is a, a, a beautiful garment to be worn. But, I'm sorry, excuse me, humility is a beautiful garment to be worn. Now, how come nobody stopped me? <laughs> but pride is odious, especially to the receivers. Uh, and Jesus gave us this example of humility. You know, he, he never looked to gather a following. And many a times when the, the crowds gathered, he... He taught something, sometimes it was terse, sometimes he withdrew from the crowds. Right? But the bottom line is men must be ordained by God. Right? Not men. Or not of their own ideas. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, in that dispensation, if a man tried to elevate himself as a priest, he would be, he would be cut down. Uh, but today we live in the age of grace. And this is important too between anointed, not necessarily self-made or educated and again it's just a cultural thing I'm sure 1500 years ago a preacher would talk about something in their culture but today you know we especially in this area we're really big into education it's important to have letters after your names and you know now a lot of pastors are not pastors anymore they're doctors and I know a lot of awesome doctors they're very smart guys but we, we've kind of had this shift that if we educate ourselves enough, we can be something important. Now, that would really be a serious problem if that was the case when Jesus walked with the disciples. Because these guys were blue. Maybe they were purple-collar workers. I mean, they were just, they were down there. They worked with their hands. They didn't have great education. As a matter of fact, their accents even betrayed them at times, the Galilean accent. They were looked down upon, and Jesus used them to do incredible things in the world. So that's, it's important to look at is being anointed, uh, not necessarily being self-made. Verse 5, uh, B, the quote from Psalm 2-7, he says, Today you are my son, or you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now this refers to the resurrection of Christ. We made this, if you're not understanding this completely, refer back to Hebrews 1 because we made this case according to Acts 13, 33 through 34. Now the word begotten does not mean that Jesus was birthed. It really doesn't have to do even with uh, the babe in the manger. This has to do with everything regarding the ordination of his resurrection for this occasion. I've established you. I've ordained you for this occasion. So let's not get hung up in the semantics of the word. I'm going to talk about that a little bit today. We're going to get a little bit into maybe Bible college material um, so that we don't get tripped up on some of the words here. Verse 6, it says that Jesus was a priest according to the Melchizedekian priesthood. And this comes from Psalm 110, again in the Old Testament. 
where David speaks about the coming priest, king, Messiah. Now, Melchizedek, I'm going to save a lot of this for chapter 7 because we really learn a lot about who Melchizedek is. Actually, Pastor Mike covered that in Genesis. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to look at who he is, who he was, what he represented. And that was found in Genesis 14. Uh, but suffice it to say this, Melchizedek either was a, a type of Christ or he was a Christophany. So let me just pique your interest a little bit. A Christophany is when prior to the first century and the plan of redemption uh, really uh, worked its way through where Jesus came in the form of a man. Jesus did appear in the Old Testament and they, they call that Christophanies. So we'll, we'll, let me pique your interest with that and we'll talk about that in chapter 7. But what is important is that Jesus was from the line of Judah, not from Levi. So he couldn't be an Aaronic priest. However, he was a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, which preceded the Aaronic priesthood. Now, what does it mean to be an eternal high priest? Well, it means that the men who were high priests, they retired, they died, they passed it on to their sons, and then to their grandsons and so on. Whereas Christ lives forever. Right? Christ was the only one to give us salvation, eternal salvation. Right? The priesthood had to keep going and going and going. and couldn't end because it had to be current. But it was, it was, it was an atonement, but it was, um, it was limited. Jesus, his salvation for us was perfect. It didn't expire. Now, when we're in heaven with the Lord and we're rejoicing for eternity, it isn't at any point that God's going to say, you know what, I remember 5,000 years ago, you, you guys were really pretty bad sinners. So when we talk about this eternal priesthood, it goes on forever. God's not going to fall out of love for us. He's not going to ditch us. He's not going to knock us out and make a whole new race of people. We are always going to be his children. That word forever is very important. So the second thing we learn is why Christ is superior over the priesthood. Again, because of this eternal order. Whereas Aaron was limited, the Aaronic priesthood was limited because of man's limitations. Verse 7. Who, in the days of his flesh, when he, meaning Jesus, had offered up prayers and supplications and vehement cries and tears to him, meaning the Father, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. This is, this is fascinating, these few verses. And I'm going to tell you, now I understand why a lot of ministries decide to leave this letter for Bible college. If you have questions, please write them down. Please email me. We really don't get a lot of emails. Tell me I didn't explain it the, w the way you could understand it. I really want you to understand this. This is going to cause us some brain pain as we look at this. Now, there are words here that are going to give us trouble. So when we talk about Jesus, he, his godly fear, does that mean he was scared of the Father when he was on the earth? No, no, no. That's a reverence. We look at some other words. Though he was a son, he learned obedience. Does that indicate that he was formerly disobedient and he, he, he had to be trained like a sinful child? Absolutely not. It says, having been perfected, does that assume that he wasn't perfect and had to be made perfect? 
The cults will take this and twist your mind with this. See, in our culture, we're very critical in our culture. We're critical about a lot of things. Even in the church, people can be very critical. We look at something and we're uh, persnickety about it. We have an issue about it. Okay, so what happens is the, the skeptic, the person who really doesn't want their heart changed, is going to look through the scripture, find stuff like this, and say, aha, I found the inconsistency in your Bible. Here's the issue, though. Here's the rub. The author of Hebrews, when he wrote Koine, the Koine Greek in the first century world, the Koine Greek hearers would hear what he had to say in the Greek. They would understand it contextually, and they wouldn't be pointing these words out. It's a different culture. Okay? So, give you an example. The word perfect does not imply ever that he was imperfect. The word perfect in the Greek means to be complete or to be fulfilled or to culminate. So, as the Son of God, were there things that had to play out? Yes, absolutely. They had to be perfected. They had to go on to maturity. They had to go on to completion. Jesus had to run the course. He had to fill all the scriptures in the Old Testament, and then he had to die for our sins. You with me on this? Okay. This probably refers to the Garden of Gethsemane, where in, in agony, he was, it was the, the Father and the Son, this intimate prayer. And he said, if there is any other way. However, in the same breath, he said, not my will, but thy will be done. So if there is no other way, let's do it this way. This was the original plan. No sin there. Always submissive, always obedient to the Father. Remember, this, what Jesus was subjected to, and, and I really hope that we come away this morning with realizing how much Jesus loves me, loves you as an individual. It was an unfair situation. Son of God was put in. The pressure was inexplicable. It was unimaginable. And I submit to you that he knew the pain of those nails being driven into his median nerves and crushing his carpals and metacarpals and you know all the different things that he was going to experience but I don't think that that was the issue the issue was a holy and just and righteous God was now getting the sin of the world dumped on him you understand that so Jesus at the cross all the horrible things that I did your pastor and will continue to do all my sins guess who got blamed for it, it wasn't me I'm scot-free I'm clean as a whistle because I believe in what Jesus did on the cross. All the, the scoundrel things that I did even worse before I was a believer, Jesus was accused. He was accused. The Father had to turn away from him in that brief moment of eternity because of my sins and your sins and the people that will come after us and the people that went before us. He was accused. Crazy stuff. Unimaginable. Brain pain when you think about it. A, a, a brief chasm of time where the Father and the Son were it was like two negatives, two magnets repelling. He couldn't look at the sun. So this is what was going to happen. Remember this. If you look at the great painters, right? The great sculptors, the great painters. Has any of those painters ever painted a beautiful scene and now is able to pick himself up and place himself into the picture? That's what Jesus did. Do you realize that? He painted this picture of salvation for us. He pictured the scene. He did it in all fine pastels and beautiful colors. And then he picked himself up and he put himself into the painting to play it, to play it out. Isn't that weird? Right? Some of this stuff, again, it's unimaginable. I've seen some weird paintings, I have to tell you. Imagine being in the screen. That's weird. 
But this is what Jesus did because he loved us so much. Okay? Now, some things that we need to take away from this is, number one, the Father couldn't take away that cup of suffering, but he did have a hand in raising him from the dead. Jesus spoke about laying down his life and taking his life up again. Also, the Father did it. So this was, again, this was amazing. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a group effort. And it said that he heard because of his godly fear. Does that mean that Jesus was now, as a man, theophobic, afraid of God? No. He had that reverence. He never sinned. He never disobeyed God. They had a conversation, and they both were in agreement at the end of the conversation that this was going to happen. So he was answered, and he was answered also in the form of the resurrection. We also learn obedience through suffering. And Jesus was our example in all things. Did you ever think, too, that maybe some of his examples were just done for us? Some of the things he went through, the trials, the temptations, the abuse, so that we could look at Jesus and say, you know, God didn't just make a bunch of little people to look at and and move them around and stuff. He actually divested himself of that glory and came down to be one of those little people and, and worked among them and showed them how they could have victory in their lives. Jesus is our example in everything. And he also learned obedience through suffering. And don't we often learn obedience through suffering? You know, when we get a little high on ourselves, we get a little out there, we're feeling our oats, and then life happens. And then our ears are open. We're paying attention. We're paying attention, aren't we? But again, our example was Jesus Christ. So I love that about him. Three, another mark of greatness was the fact that Jesus was so powerful and restrained his power. Peter, you don't need to save me from these guys. I could do it a lot better than you. You couldn't even hit his neck. You you took his ear off. I could do much better than that, Peter. Put the sword away. That's not what I'm about. You've got to understand that. I can call 12 legions of angels down right now and wipe these people out. But that's not what I'm here to die for them, not to kill them. He restrained his power. Jesus never aggrandized himself. Even when he walked on water... If you really understand and you read that portion of scripture, did he do that for himself? No, he did that for his disciples. If he did that to make himself look great, he didn't do a good job because they were in the boat afraid. Look, there's a spirit coming towards us. What do we do? It didn't go too well. But Jesus, that wasn't his point. His point was to lift up his men and to show them, you know, to, to encourage them, to bolster them. What makes a person great oftentimes, especially if they have power and authority, is that they don't flaunt it. You know, I I think of the uh, professional fighters who maybe go out and they're famous, whether the the MMA guys or boxers, and some guy with, there's always some guy with beer muscles who wants to pick a fight with them. Because if you can get the lucky shot, and then he could be the guy that knocked out Mike Tyson or Ken Shamrock or any of these guys. You know, these guys will leave, they won't engage. The ones who are smart, the ones who are really good at what they do, they'll leave. They're not going to get into a fight with this guy. They know what they could do. They they move on. It shows more restraint not to knock somebody out that's really irritating you and to pick up your stuff and move on to another place. Jesus was our example in that restraint. We can do a lot of things with the freedom that we have in Christ, but we often restrict ourselves at times so we don't stumble somebody else. We don't freak them out about what Christianity is all about. We won't partake in that. Now, 2 Corinthians 5.21, again, this is 
one of the most powerful scriptures in, in the Bible, one verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, For he, meaning the Father, made him, meaning the Son, who knew no sin, had no tangible, familiarity, experiential knowledge of sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Not only did did Jesus go down, you ever see two kids and they're fighting and you're trying to figure out which one did what to the other one? And sometimes as a parent, you make a mistake and you punish the one who really was the innocent one and you feel terrible about it. Jesus took my punishment on that cross. Better yet, it wasn't that I just escaped. I got to take his righteousness. We switched identities. That's what the scripture is all about. And he wasn't ashamed to identify with us. You know, God could have started all over again. And he didn't. You know, he, he just went and he fixed the problem instead of erasing it. And in verse 10, back to Hebrews 5, it says again, or again it says, called by God as the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. When we look at John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's the, the theory. That's the, 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 the actuality. That's what actually happened. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is the nuts and bolts. I love that about the scripture. God just doesn't say it's this. He explains. He doesn't have to explain himself. How, how do we just... Well, that doesn't make any sense. God is a righteous and just God. How does my sin now get dealt with? He, I just believe. It doesn't make any sense until we read this. Somebody paid for it. It just wasn't me. It wasn't you. It was him. The third thing we learn, because of Christ's perfection, his obedience, his accepting of our guilt, is the reason, going back to where we started, why we have access to his throne. Now here's where the author of Hebrews is going to ramp it up. And he's basically going to ask the Hebrew Christians that he's speaking to, so knowing all this, why would you want to go backwards? Why would you go back to the temple sacrifices? You've been delivered from that. Jesus is your great high priest. I would also ask today, anyone who's walked with the Lord and you're under pressure and you're being persecuted, you're, you're having some issues, maybe somebody is listening on the website that it's far greater than we could ever imagine. After tasting the sweet fruit of Jesus Christ, how could we go back to the wax fruit of the world? Now, I've been to many people's homes and sometimes there's wax fruit. And sometimes it looks really good. And I pick it up and I don't smell the apple. You ever smell an apple or citrus? Oh, that is such a great smell. That is so natural. It's so pure. Your body is so saying, I want that. And, and I don't smell it, and I go to squeeze it, and it squishes in my hand because it's rubber. I put it back. I'm not going to take a bite out of that. That's disgusting. You know what I'm saying? And I just ruined somebody's decoration. But the point is, if you've been walking with the Lord at least for a little while, that's sweet fruit. Mm, your soul, your spirit says, I want that. 
Why would you go back to the wax fruit of the world? It has nothing for anybody here. None of you. It has nothing for you. Verse 11. He says, I'll read 11 through 14. Of whom, meaning Jesus, we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only in milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So verse 11, dull of hearing actually is a nice translation. I like going back into the Greek. What else could this mean? Well, could mean stupid. Remember Pastor Louis said we shouldn't use that word? Could mean lazy. This is a very stern rebuke in the last few verses of this chapter. It does appear that the writer of Hebrews might have gone on to some even greater, more solid, more meat-of-the-word discussions, but he felt that it might have been a waste of his time for some of the hearers, as if he was throwing pearls before swine. Does that offend anybody here? you offended by the scripture when it says things like that? Are you so used to turning on the TV and listening to preachers that tell you what you want to hear that this bothers you? Let me tell you something. If that's the case, we're missing out. We're missing out. You see, American culture, it is very hard to preach the truth in the middle of American, even Christian culture, because the Bible needs to afflict us at times. The Bible has to afflict us. The Word has to pierce. Remember we talked about 4, 12, and 13, the Word of God is sharper than two, two-edged sword. It leaves us all naked and bare before Him. It, it, it reveals the thoughts and intents of the heart. It does all those things. We get afflicted when we read God's Word. But we turn on the TV and we read some of these books, and it's a competition. And it isn't just from the world. It's within Christianity. If you're not listening to things that convict you, you're really missing out. It's going to really stunt the growth process. And I tell you what, I want refuse to bow down to what American culture is teaching because it's sending us down the river is what it's doing. There's no hope. There's no sense. You know, I was just, I just was, I clicked on to, um, Johnny Depp was complaining about, um, uh, about he feels like he's in a prison. He's so famous, he has to go in the back doors of restaurants and things like that. And he even said, I just would like to walk through the, through the mall with my daughter, and I can't, without an entourage of security. So, so many people look at that and go, oh, I'd love to be him. I bet he's got a great life. And here he is telling us that his life is a prison. He has millions of dollars at his disposals. People, when he comes into the back door, they probably roll out the carpet but he's in prison. Is that what you want? You want to be a, a sports star? Do you want to be, uh, you know, B- Brian Bosworth, who talked about all this, the steroids and the drugs and the women and the parties? All it did was probably fry his brain. And that's what the world says. You can be like this. And it's a lie. It's a facade. God's word says other- otherwise. So, affliction. And then the rebuke becomes more pointed. What's the problem in verse 12? Well, that some in his audience by this time should have been teaching. They should have had an authority role. But what's worse than that is they needed to be taught the simple things all over again like little babies. Now let me um, turn to first or 
yeah, 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 3, 1 through 3, where, Jesus, or where Paul speaks about this. 1 Corinthians 3. This is the Apostle Paul, who I also think wrote Hebrews, but it's just my opinion. He says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Now, here's the analogy. A baby. The best thing for a newborn is its mother's milk. The colostrum and the enzymes. When it, God is amazing. When it comes through to the child, everything's broken down because the baby's digestive system is still growing. Now, the baby can't... If you gave a newborn a piece of steak, the baby would either choke, so don't do this. The baby would either choke or throw it up and they, they would become you know, nauseous. Because the baby lacks the enzymes, it lacks the, the trypsin and the chymotrypsin that actually hydrolyzes and breaks down protein into digestible parts that can be assimilated into the body. A baby can't eat meat. So Paul's using this example and saying it to believers, listen, there's nothing wrong as a new believer, you know, your first few years, fall in love with the Lord, you know, you're learning about God, you're, you're a baby, you need that milk. Jesus died for your sins, he's always there for you, he, he loves you. Uh, he does forgive your sins. That's the, the milk of the word. But then at some point we have to move on as we develop or we should be developing to the meat of the word. And we may see this firsthand at times. You know, we may come to the Lord and see others who've been saved for a while and maybe even look up to them because they've been believers for a while. And then maybe 20 years later where God is using us. He's using us mightily. We, we raise our hand, yes, Lord, I'll go. And then we go back and see these same people who are still in a stagnant pond. They haven't moved anywhere. They haven't gone anywhere. Their faith is not dynamic. This is the thing that the author of Hebrews is warning against. You might have friends. You might have a clique or a cadre of Christian friends. I've seen this too. Where it's not said, but it's understood. Don't try to get too holy. You know, don't try to get too excited. Don't be excited about your, your love for the Lord because you know, we're all kind of in the same boat and it's going to make the rest of us look bad. We say a lot of things without saying them with our mouths. And then you decide, you know, I want more. I want more. I, wanna, I feel like I'm stagnating. And you repent and you ask the Lord to use you. And all of a sudden your friends get irritated with you. Ever have that happen? Well, it's common. Or even a, a husband and wife situation. The husband saved, the wife is not, or vice versa. I've seen this as well. I want my husband to be saved. I want my wife to be saved. And then they get saved, and then they grow, and then they serve, and then they're on fire. And that one spouse is irritated because it's a threat to them, because they haven't moved, because they're still on milk. And that spouse is now, I want the meat of the word. I want everything that the Lord has to offer me. And it actually can cause contention in a relationship. Again, I'm not, gonna, I'm not here to talk to you about the atheists and all the stuff that are going on outside. I'm here to talk to you about the problems within the church. Because when I stand before the Lord, okay, that's what I'm mandated to do. If you've been a Christian for some time, I mean, I mean some time, you're not teaching, you're not an authority, and listen, it doesn't have to be up here. You saw a few Sundays ago the Klaukies. They're not young people. 
They've got 70 African children because they've been orphaned. God has used them to be spiritual parents to these children. They don't have to be up here. They don't have to be on the worship team or with a boom on your ear like the pastor. You know, I know some awesome couples in this church that they're accomplished, but they're teaching children in the children's ministry. And they may not see the fruit of that for 10, 20 years. Right? Or Brother Arnie, he's here somewhere. Uh, he goes into the prisons. Musty, dank, dark prisons. Faithfully and ministers to those men. And they love to see him. They love to see Brother Arnie come in with the word. So don't misunderstand what he's saying or what I'm saying. I'm saying that if we've been Christians for some time, we shouldn't be sucking on milk anymore. We should be eating the, the meat of the word and it should, it should come out in what we do in our Christian walk. 13, last few verses. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. What are we doing with our lives? And here's the deal. Can we practice righteousness? It's not really easy to practice it when we're still on milk. I, I want to read to you something that Warren Wiersbe says in his book, Be Confident, about this. It's called Unskillful in Using the Word. As we grow in the Word, we learn to use it in daily life. As we apply the Word, we exercise our spiritual senses and develop spiritual discernment. It is a characteristic of little children that they lack discernment. A baby will put anything into its mouth. An immature believer will listen to any preacher on the radio or television. And I would add books and media. It's just going to confuse you some of these things. And not be able to identify or not whether he is true to the scriptures. A babe in the word can't do that, but somebody on solid food can do that. They'll immediately pick up something is wrong as they start to read that book. And eventually they'll pick it out because the spirit is teaching them. So, I really want to bring a positive out of what some may perceive this morning as a negative. God wants us to be successful, but not as the world is successful. God wants us to be successful in our walk with him. And I, I try to, to, to turn the conversation when some read some of the things or they hear some of the preachings and they get a little miffed. And I say, don't let that upset you. Why does God put this in? Because he wants us to stay infantile and then he wants, to, he wants to abuse us and make fun of us over it. Absolutely not. What he wants us to do is he wants us to warn us against remaining infantile. He wants us to grow in the things of the Lord. He wants to do great things. He wants to partner with us. Now some of you are looking for a job and it would be great if some CEO of some great company called you up and said, Hey Bob, come work for me. You could actually work in my corporate office with me. Wow, the CEO of a big company. Here's God. Are we, are we saying no to the things of God? He's the CEO of all of creation. And he's not taking millions of dollar bonuses and robbing us blind either. You know what I'm saying? God wants us to be successful. He wanted the first century Hebrews to be successful. 
He wanted everyone reading this to be successful and he wants us to be successful. But there's going to be times where he has to talk to us and it's going to be a little terse to get us off of our laziness, off of our uncommittal, off of our doing the same old, same old and bring us into greater things so that he can partner with us. I just want to leave you with one scripture as we close. Psalm 34 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who trusts in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we, we love your word, Lord. We see that the author, it's just amazing. And you can see the, the human nature where he's going and he's, he's reaching this crescendo. And then he's like, you know what, I've got to stop for a minute. I can't go any further and this is the reason. Lord, as we read this book, in our world, in our neighborhoods, there's poverty, there's addictions, there's sorrow, there's...